Please open your Bible to Luke 2. Luke 2. Merry Christmas. Now, since the time I was a kid, uh, Christmas this season has always included watching movies. From It's a Wonderful Life to Miracle on 34th Street to The Muppets Christmas Carol. We would watch Christmas movies as a family. Less known among the videos I watched as a kid was a VHS tape. And kids, you can ask your parents about those that we had called The King is Born. And it was an animated retelling of the birth of Jesus that was produced in 1987. Now, whether my parents realized it or not, this video has shaped how I thought about the birth of Jesus for most of my life. So the images from this video, this 30-minute video that we had, from Gabriel's blonde hair and blue eyes to the relationship of Mary and Joseph, these are the images that pop up in my mind when I think about Christ's birth. Now, there's a lesson for parents in all of this, but I'm not going to get into that now. Uh, My point in bringing this up is that we live in a world, and many of us have grown up with stories where the birth of Jesus Christ is very familiar to us. The cast of characters and the narrative, they don't really bring any surprise. We know the details and we know what to expect. But over time, something has happened. Many of the details that we've grown accustomed to knowing that are so familiar to us aren't actually a part of the story. We think we know it so well, but perhaps we're wrong. And one theologian, he, he likened this story to a diamond ring. And the more that it's, it's brought out and worn and shown off, the more cloudy it becomes, the more dirt and dust it picks up. And so it needs to be brought to a jeweler from time to time to be cleaned in order to see its original brilliance. And just like that diamond ring, the more familiar we are with a Bible story, particularly this story, the more we need to take time to view it as the Bible actually presents it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 together under two simple headings. And I'm going to make comments as we go along to help us, Lord willing, see it more clearly. And as we rehearse this familiar, familiar story, my hope is that we would encounter the miraculous grace of God in this story. May its familiarity not blind us to the astonishing fact of this event that took place in history. It happens in a real place just over 2,000 years ago. It's not a myth. It's not an idea. It's as real as us gathered together in this room this morning. And our first heading this morning is this. Number one, an ordinary birth. An ordinary birth. And follow along with me as I begin reading in Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now Luke sets the scene by presenting this historical fact In the days of the birth of Christ, in those days, a decree was announced that required all people in the Roman Empire to go to their hometown and be counted. Now, this decree was made by, Luke tells us, by Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome. Now, Luke, interestingly enough, he's the only writer in the Bible who mentions the emperors of Rome. And he does it multiple times, both in Luke and Acts. 
Now, Caesar Augustus, he was born on September 23rd, 63 B.C. And he was given the name Octavian. And he had this great uncle that you may have heard of named Julius Caesar. Now, by the time Octavian was 32 years old, Julius Caesar had been assassinated, you might have heard about that, and all of Octavian's rivals had been defeated. And this cleared the way then for Octavian, the great nephew of Julius Caesar, to become the emperor of Rome. Now, a few years later, in in 27 BC, Octavian was given the name Augustus by the Roman Senate. Augustus means majestic or holy. And Caesar Augustus then reigned, as one historian described, with unrivaled supremacy until his death on August 19th, 14 AD. Now, Augustus was a powerful man. He greatly expanded the Roman Empire, and he boasted that he found Rome built in brick, and he left it in marble. So Luke begins his narrative of the birth of Christ by presenting it in the context of the most well-known and powerful man in the entire world, making this decree that everyone must be registered. Now, what about the decree? Now, we, we know it was a sentence, but what was its purpose? Did Augustus just want to count people? Not exactly. The purpose of this registration was to tax people. Everyone had to go to their hometown to be taxed. Now, while this decree it was very good news for the tax collectors, it was bad news for everyone else. And the same is true for Joseph. When he receives this decree, it's anything but some announcement of good news. It's an obligation. It's a great burden placed upon him. And we should keep this, in, this bad news in mind as we look at our next verses. Look at verses 4 and 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now Joseph, he was a poor man. Uh, we find this out later in Luke 2, when Joseph and Mary, as was Jewish custom, they go to the temple to make a sacrifice in order to be purified after the birth of a baby. But they can't afford a lamb, so instead they bring with them either two turtle doves or two pigeons. This is the sacrifice of a poor person. And responding to this decree means that Joseph must take extended time away from work, away from the way he made his living. He can't hop on a plane, he can't get in a car and go down the highway, but he has to make his way up dangerous roads on foot and travel some 70 miles from Nazareth to his town of origin, Bethlehem. And to complicate matters, he makes this journey caring for and protecting his fiancée, his betrothed, Mary, who was with child. And all for the purpose of going to pay taxes. Now, most stories we see in here today about this journey, they they take a lot of liberty with the details here. Uh, If you watch the videotape that I grew up with, you would have seen Mary riding on a donkey as she was clearly quite far along in her pregnancy. The journey, it's set to music, and it's a nice and peaceful journey, Subtly romantic in this video. But then the music stops. And and Mary turns to Joseph saying, I think the baby's coming. And Joseph responds, oh no, do you think we have enough time? And Mary responds, "Ah, a little longer, I think. (laughs) And so then Mary and Joseph, they arrive in this bustling Bethlehem. And Joseph is desperate to find a place for Mary to stay. But he's met with door after door slammed in his face. There's no room here. 
Eventually, one innkeeper, he offers a stable, and they go and stay there. And the story goes on with all the production quality of an animated film produced by Christians in the late 80s. <laughs> now, it's, it's a nice story, but the problem is that it's not the story that the Bible tells us. Joseph was more than likely too poor to have a donkey. Mary wasn't on the verge of going into labor. And on top of that, the Bible doesn't even mention any hotels or innkeepers or even stables in the birth of Christ. In fact, it all plays out through what seemed like a series of, I think as we're going to find out, pretty typical events. So after making their way up to Bethlehem, Luke writes this in verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So Joseph and Mary, they're there in Bethlehem. And then after some time passes... It could have been a week or two or a couple months. The time comes for Mary to have the baby. Verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now Luke speaks of Jesus' birth in a very ordinary way for a poor family in the region of Judea. Joseph arrives in his hometown, one in which he, he was related to people, right? This is his town of origin. And, and it's in a culture that's committed to showing generous hospitality. Still is today. And so he comes to Bethlehem, and he would have gone straight over, not to the local Holiday Inn, but he would have gone to some relative's house. And instead of being met with a door slammed in his face, he would have expected and would have received a warm welcome. But what about this talk of an inn? There's no place for them in the inn. What do we do with that? Well, I don't often mention Greek words in my sermons, but since it's Christmas, here's a gift for you. (laughs) The word that we read as in is translated from the Greek word kataluma. And kataluma means, means guest room. This word is used only one other time by Luke, and that takes place in Luke 22. And in this passage, Jesus is giving his disciples instructions for preparing for the Passover. And so in Luke 22, verses 10 through 12, Jesus says this. He says, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, the Cataluma, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. So when Luke mentions that there was no place for them in the inn, what it means is that the guest room was already occupied. Remember, this decree has gone out and everybody must come. So there are probably other relatives that are there as well. Somebody's already staying in the guest room. So where else do you put the guests? Well, common homes at that time, there were typically just two rooms. I've already mentioned this guest room, this cataluma, which was already full, and it would have either been attached directly to the side of the house or perhaps above the house, an upper room. And this room would have had a separate entrance. But the rest of the house was really just one big open space. And it would have been separated at some point by either a half wall or a few stairs. The main room was what might be described as a family room. But it's not like our family room. They weren't watching TV in this room. It was a family room because this is where the whole family would cook and eat and sleep and and live. That was it. This room would have been higher than where the entrance of the home was. So you could sweep out dirt out the front door. Uh, It would also be easier to keep dry, being higher. But it was also higher so that animals wouldn't come into it. It was kept a little separate from the animals. You see, this area directly connected to the family room 
is where the animals would be kept at night. Now, why would animals be kept in the house? Well, they were there to be cared for and to be kept safe from being stolen. They would be brought in at night, brought in through the front door, and they would stay there at night. Because they were in the house, there, they, there would have been a feeding trough, a manger, somewhere to, that they would eat out of right there and easily accessible so that you wouldn't have to go out at night to feed the animals. Having the animals in the house also provided the added benefit of their body heat, helping keep the house warm on cool evenings. Now, it's weird to us today. Well, maybe not if you have a dog. It might not be weird to you if you have a dog, but it's weird to the rest of us. But it was a practical and common way houses were built in this region up until around 100 years ago. So when Joseph arrives at what was likely the house of one of his relatives, he and Mary, they're welcome and brought in to stay in that common area of the home since the guest room was already taken. And this is likely where Mary gave birth to her baby. And more than likely... She gave birth with all of the support and care of the other women, relatives, who would have been present. So when her baby is born, Luke tells us that he was wrapped in swaddling cloths, which was a normal practice with infants. And then the baby was laid in a manger, a spot that, while certainly humble, would have been the most practical and safe place to put a baby. Because it would have been right there within sight and sound and reach of, of that common area of the house. More than likely, so the, the manger would have been this wooden structure that sheep would eat out of. They could just lift that thing up and put it in the living area of the house. Now, the brevity of Luke's narrative about the birth of Jesus, and Matthew's is the same way, highlights something for us. The circumstances of Jesus actually being born in Bethlehem, they were humble. They were entirely unremarkable and ordinary. And, and so we see it right there. Uh, Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. It's like, that's, that's all there is to it. But Luke's narrative doesn't stop there. So we've, we've considered this ordinary birth, but I want to turn to our second heading, an extraordinary Savior. This birth becomes something entirely remarkable and extraordinary in Luke's story when the scene changes. So Luke writes this in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds, out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, at the time of the birth of this baby, shepherds, they were seen as poor and lowly and uneducated people. And everyone was a bit skeptical of them. You see, they spent most of their time alone out in the open country. Would, a dangerous area would have been a dangerous area. They would be gone for long periods of time. Because of how unreliable and suspicious they were, they weren't even allowed to give testimony or, or bear witness in a trial. They were not allowed to. Uh, because of their profession, no one really trusted shepherds. But as this group of shepherds, they're keeping an eye on their sheep that night, suddenly something shocking happens. Look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and their response is completely right, they were filled with great fear. Suddenly, out of nowhere, this terrifying and hair-raising moment happens. These shepherds dwelling in the darkness of night, on them a light shines. Where does this light come from? What is this angel of the Lord here to do? These are, are again, lowly, poor Outcasts of society, low in social standing. And the angel of the Lord appears to them. 
There can't be any reason for an angel of the Lord to be speaking to these men. But the angel of the Lord speaks and addresses them. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel comes with this birth announcement. Now before we think about this announcement, do you remember Caesar Augustus? We, we met him earlier in this narrative. Well, he was not a particularly humble man. In fact, he was incredibly powerful, as I said, and, and he encouraged people to actually worship him as a god. And over the last 200 years, so this is recent history, over the last 200 years, various sayings about Augustus have been discovered, in, inscriptions uh, in, in stone. They've been discovered about Augustus that date back to this time. Now across the board, these inscriptions, they reflect the power and greatness Augustus ascribed to himself. One inscription that dates back to 9 BC. 9 BC. It says that the day of Augustus' birth marked the beginning of good news for the world. The day of Augustus' birth marked the beginning of good news for the world. An inscription about Caesar Augustus. Another said that he is the father of Rome, the son of Zeus, and a savior of the common people. It goes on to say that he not only fulfilled the needs of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. Caesar Augustus was someone who openly identified himself as God and Savior, one who brought peace and hope and good news to all people. But his rule and reign as experienced by these shepherds and everyone else alive at this time was anything but good news. It was a rule and reign that declared one thing and delivered another. It came labeled as good news, but only resulted in bad news. But this angel comes from another world, announcing an entirely different gift. The good news delivered here, this announcement is not one that takes from you, but gives to you. It saves you. And here is that announcement, verse 11. For unto you is born this day, in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And while the people of Israel, they were, they were waiting for the Messiah of the Lord, they never expected that the Messiah to come, the Christ, would be the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. This baby comes as Christ the Lord, God himself, with us now to dwell. But get this, the angel doesn't come only with words. The angel comes with a sign, a confirmation of the reality that has been proclaimed. So look at verse 12. The angel continues. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This sign is for these shepherds. Through this sign, the angel is showing them that this Savior isn't only for the important and wealthy. It's not only for the famous and the powerful. This Savior comes as one poor and lowly for the poor and lowly. He's wrapped just as they were wrapped as babies in swaddling cloths. He's laid in a manger in a peasant's home just like the one they grew up in. He's not loftily at rest in a palace. He does not come as a conquering warrior. He comes as a humble and helpless child. Although he is true God of true God, light from light eternal, he comes in humility, in poverty, just like them, just like these shepherds, in order to stand in their place and save them. 
You see, the birth of Jesus isn't announced as the arrival of the Savior, of a Savior just for the, for the rich and the famous, the powerful and the beautiful and the athletic and the perfect. He doesn't come to make the good enough better. He doesn't come to... He comes to save the lowest and the least. He comes to save the overlooked and the poor, the downcast. You see, you don't need to be a social influencer or anyone else for the God of the universe to take notice of you. Because the God of the universe in his coming, he, he announces his coming. Of all the people in the world, he could have announced his coming to. He announces his coming to this group of shepherds, lowly shepherds, on a hillside outside of a little town called Bethlehem. And this angel announces good news to the poor, hope for all people. After this remarkable announcement, the heavens, they, they can't contain their silence. Look at what Luke says next. Verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Out of nowhere, and the angel appeared out of nowhere, then out of nowhere the, the heavenly host, this army of angels, breaks forth into praise. And this army is enlisted not for the conquering of other people or the expansion of an earthly kingdom. This army is brought out for the sole purpose of praise. Amen. You know, we, I mean, throughout human history, we've seen dictators and world leaders put on display their power and might both to their nation and to the world by bringing out their army, right? So that all might see. Here, the God of the universe enlists this army of angels this heavenly host, to come forth to testify of his glory and grace in the coming of this baby to a group of shepherds on this hillside. It's remarkable. Let's consider what they say. So they give to God the highest praise they can articulate. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the heavens. And then they turn to the effect of this glory on the earth. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This isn't describing God's peace coming to those who please him, as if he saves those who have earned it. It means that God's peace comes to those whom God chooses to show his favor. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The shepherds did nothing to deserve hearing this announcement. The announcement came to them. And the same is true for us today. We have done nothing to earn receiving the gift of the gospel. God's grace and salvation, it doesn't come to us because we've been such good boys and girls, or we've been to church enough, or because we just have so much to offer to God that he didn't want heaven without us. He had to have us on his team. No, gospel grace comes to us in our weakness, in our sin, in our need for a Savior. And in this baby, we see that the Savior of the world has come to us, unto us. A child is born. Just as the angels could not contain their praise, the shepherds, they cannot keep silent. So they spring into action. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Notice they say the Lord has made known to this. Not, not the, the angel. The Lord has made known this to us. Six, verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
The shepherds go and see, and all is just as the angels told them it would be. And notice that they aren't surprised by what they find, because what they see is so normal to them. The care for the baby is right and appropriate. The shepherds don't show up and be like, oh my goodness, the baby's in a manger. What do we do? Like, let's find, let's move them. No. No, they come and they, they see the baby lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. Mary and Joseph caring for the baby. They don't go and move them to a more suitable place to stay. They show up and find that the angel was right. This was their sign. What the Lord said was really true. Verse 17, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They were amazed. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And these shepherds, who couldn't even serve as a witness for a trial, became witnesses, the first witnesses, to the coming of Christ the Lord. Again, of all the people, of all the people that have been chosen to bear witness of the coming of Christ the King, Christ the Lord, God chose these shepherds. They are the first to go out and proclaim the good news of this birth to others. And it wasn't because they were accomplished. It wasn't because they were really bold. It wasn't because they had some great ability. It wasn't because they had no fear of man. It wasn't because they had it all together. The basis of their witness, the basis of the the testimony that they gave, was only that truth, the coming of the Savior, had been told them. That was it. They had received this word and become servants of it. So they must tell others about this child. And our response should be the same. We are a people who are, are called and created by the word of God. Marked off and defined by this declaration about this baby. By the word of God. And we've heard this word. We've heard this good news. The gospel of salvation. And so we gather each week to remember and to rehearse who this baby is and what he came to do. This is not just a Christmas morning thing. This is an every Sunday thing. And then we go into our normal and ordinary lives from there. We interact with others at work. We go to the grocery store. We do our chores. We get our cars worked on. We pay the bills. We eat and we go to the bathroom and we go to sleep. Like all really ordinary things. We've received this remarkable gospel. And it's an incredible privilege to have heard, to have been told this truth. But our lives are lived in such ordinary ways. And this is exactly how it was for, our sh- for the shepherds. Upon receiving this good news, look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned. Notice they didn't quit their job. They didn't abandon the sheep. They didn't go and follow Mary and Joseph around. They returned to what they were doing before this astonishing appearance of angels with their announcement. But things were different now for them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So upon hearing of the Christ and seeing Him, their lives, rather than becoming detached from who they had been, they were simply transformed into one of bearing astonished witness and joyful praise to God in the ordinary tasks that they were given to do. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us today. We don't live our lives to offer to God something that He needs. We live lives acknowledging the reality of who He already is. 
we recognize that there is no one like Him. That we have no other Savior beside Him. And so, we praise Him. We simply say what we see. We bear witness to who He is, to the worth and work of God. Like the shepherds, we declare what we have been told. And so, as we consider the coming of Christ for us, we must remember again what He came to do. He was not only born for us, but He came to die for us. The earthly life that began with a baby being wrapped in swaddling cloths and placed in someone else's manger ended with this baby as a man being bound to a cross to die and then wrapped in linen and placed in someone else's tomb. But for this man, death was not and is not the end. He is the heaven-born Prince of Peace. He is the Son of Righteousness, and He rose, bringing His peace and healing to all those with whom He is pleased. He came in humility, mild He lays His glory by, and He came to save us. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for the coming of this child who was you, God himself, with us now dwell, Emmanuel. Would our, our lives be one of, of giving joyful praise to you, bearing grateful witness, astonished witness, at all you have done and all you have done for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.